0: Well, it's good to be with you again. I guess I don't need that. On this uh, beautiful day, cool cool, and uh, lovely day in beautiful Houston, Texas, in the heights, 1548 Heights. I have the distinct pleasure of being with you over the course of the next few months to take us from our minister has left Tell here's your new minister. But I'm very happy that this week I will be heading up to the beautiful Pacific Northwest. And Matt and I have made arrangements to dine together at lunch on Friday. And so if you have any little personal notes that you want to send to him, and trust me, to to deliver them, you can go ahead and write those and seal them and I'll hand them to, to him as we as we dine. We're gonna dine in Olympia, the capital of the state of Washington. It all seems very appropriate. And then I'll be back to give you a full report next Sunday on how Matt and Angela are doing in their new digs there in the Pacific Northwest. Ashton, we hardly knew you, at least I hardly knew you, but you promised to come back, so uh, please do. Uh, Bill, is gonna be a delight to work with you and have you, I was very blessed this morning by all aspects of our worship, the prayers, the communion, uh, everything, the singing, uh, the doxology, the Lord's Prayer, these basics to our Christian faith. And now it is time for the sermon. I should probably tell you upfront what we're going to do lest you get lost and discouraged along the way. The sermon that's about to come will ask one critical question. The question is this, will we begrudge God for extending grace to people whom we find undeserving? And then the real invitation of the sermon that will come at the end, and it will be an invitation to enter into the joy enter into the joy of God's grace. We'll move through three stories. and The first one occurred to me just recently. I was in a crowded Kroger's checking out with a full cart, a cart full of a week's worth of groceries, the kind of cart that has the Diet Pepsi's hanging over, I mean, diet Dr. Peppers hanging over the edge of the cart. I'm waiting in a long meandering line with fellow shoppers, at least a dozen and a half of us, in a single line with one lane open. Some of the people in front of me have arms full, they're carrying their little baskets, all waiting in the one checkout lane. When suddenly, much to my surprise, a woman approaches me with her gray braided hair and her Kroger outfit, and she is beckoning me like this. I say, who, me, really? She takes the front of my cart. This clerk is leading me to a new checkout lane that she is opening for me. At the front of the line she takes me, among the dozens she has selected me to be the first in line. She pulls my cart and I follow politely, quietly, looking straight ahead at the back of her head. I don't dare turn back and look at the fellow shoppers that I have left behind, still waiting. I do not want to see their reactions. I don't want to see their frowns and scowls. There are looks of contrast, that look that says, I have been waiting longer than he. I have fewer groceries than he. I deserve to go ahead of him. I imagine these looks and what they're thinking because I've had those looks and those thoughts myself. I was on my way to Kroger's, heavy traffic, cars inching forward on the highway, several vehicles in a parking lot adjacent to the highway, cars lined up to enter our lane of traffic. There's pickups, there's cars, there's even a semi. Waiting patiently they are, without the benefit of a light to exit their parking lot, to get into the highway attempting to enter my lane of traffic. Cars, I say, a pickup and even a semi. Then the car in front of me breaks. She's going to let one driver in. Okay, I think. And then she lets in a second, and I toot my horn. Just a toot. But to no avail, she doesn't listen. Then she lets in a third. Honk, honk, I go. And I say out loud, though I know she can't hear me, I say, lady, enough. She doesn't hear me because she waves in a semi. I wait experiencing her grace to others. And I realize that I deserve to move down the road ahead of these cars and this semi. I've been on the road longer than these Johnny-come-latelys. I'm on my way to Kroger's, where I will receive the sweet grace of the clerk who will take me to the front of the line. That's the first story. The second story is much better. And it moves this way. Jesus is the one who tells it. A man has two sons, he starts in. And the younger son says to his father, give me the share of the estate that I have coming. And so the father divides his wealth between his two sons. Not many days later, the younger son takes off for a distant country where he squanders his share of the estate in wild living. Once he's spent everything, then a famine ravages the country, and the now destitute son hires himself out to a Gentile farmer who sends him out to the field to feed the pigs. Longing to eat the pigs' slop, no one is giving him anything. At that moment, he comes to himself and he says, My father's hired workers have it better than this. They have more than enough bread, and here I am dying of starvation. Here's what I'll do. I'll go back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'll say, I am no longer worthy to be your son. Treat me like a hired hand. And so, he heads back to his father. But when he's still a long way off, his father sees him, and he feels compassion for him, and he runs to him, and he embraces him, and he kisses him, and the son starts in. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be considered your son. But before he can finish his speech, the father says to the staff, Quick! Bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Let's bring out the fatted calf. And they eat and celebrate because my son, we thought he was dead, but he's alive. He was lost, but we found him. And they begin to party. Meanwhile, the older son is out in the field. And when he approaches the house, he hears the music. And the dancing. And he summons one of the workers. He begins to ask questions. Worker says, Your brother, he's come. Your father, he slaughtered the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. But the older brother, he becomes angry. He refuses to go in to the party. And then the father steps outside and starts pleading with the older brother. But the older brother says, look, I've been serving you for years. I never neglected a single command of yours. And did I ever get a party once? No. But when this son of yours, who's devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you prepare the fatted calf for him, And the father says, my son, you've always been with me. Everything that I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and throw a party. Your brother, we thought he was dead, but he's alive. He was lost, and we found him. And that's the abrupt ending to the second story. And now, the third It's the title of this sermon, which is entitled The Trouble with Grace. A sermon that begins with our Kroger (laughs) experience and is rooted in the biblical text that we've just rehearsed. The biblical text, of course, is Luke chapter 15, and it's a dangerous place for me to go this morning, I confess it, because you already know that story. You already own that story and what happens next isn't typically how it's played out in your head. I'm saying that there's already likely formed in your mind a very clear, if creatively rearranged, image of this biblical story. Not as true to the biblical text as the spirit of the Kroger story. You've invented a place, perhaps, that operates apart from Luke's world. In the story that's in your head, likely, there's a father, that's clearly God in your story, and a wayward son or daughter, and that's you. There's no older brother to cloud things up. There's a home and there's a party waiting for you. The far country and the pig pen are cloudy and getting more and more distant in the background and in the foreground. Here he comes, your father. He's running toward you. His head is bowed. Your head is bowed in shame. One eye is closed and the other eye is open. You're eyeballing all the gifts that he's carrying, the robe, the sandals, the ring. You're grateful for these welcome gifts, knowing, of course, that you're not worthy. And now your father comes and he embraces you. And you put his head on your shoulder, on his shoulder, and he puts his head on your shoulder, and you're both crying. He's crying tears of relief and you're you're crying tears of joy. And when we create for ourselves the role of the younger brother or younger sister, the part of the story that we enjoy the most is the detailed description of the gifts. So let me get to it. The best robe, the preacher wants to assure us, means the first robe. The robe of highest quality. Your father seems intent on showing grace to you. The father's robe will show acceptance to the community. You are the guest of honor. The ring, ah, yes, a signet ring, it represents authority. The shoes, a symbol of freedom. Slaves go barefoot. And the fatted calf, why, that's a rare feat in this culture. It's a special occasion that marks the father's love for you. Tell us about the kiss. The kiss is a signal of reconciliation. And I would—I need to mention very quickly that it is very unusual for an older man to be running in this culture. The father has compassion on you and his actions seem to be without restraint. But I can't say that fast enough because you've already done the translation in your head. God has provided you out of his grace with a suit of clothes, tailor-made, filling your closets and spilling across your bed. And in the driveway, take a look, there sits your new Jaguar. seventh series, oval grill, forest green. Open the door to your new Jag, put your nose inside. Oh, you say, I love the smell of a new Jaguar. And our dinner, our dinner, we'll have a special tonight. We'll begin with an appetizer of French soup, rich, Roasted onion stock and sherry wine, topped with rye croutons and melted Swiss and Parmesan cheese. For the main course, we'll have sauteed beef tenderloin tips served on a bed of rice pilaf, topped with a dark European butter. Oh, stop, stop, stop! Just the menu is making me hungry. And the party—the party has all the people you've known, even the ones you don't like. They're all there—aunts and uncles, old friends, everybody to greet you. Good to have you back. They say, "Welcome home." Good to see you, pat, 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 hug, hug, hug. What a party, and it's so satisfying. And that's generally how the story runs in our mind. Our story that was taken from this text, maybe we should have a caption at the beginning of this film that we direct and star in. And the caption should read, based on a true story based on a true story, because this created tale that we've constructed is nowhere in the biblical tale. It's quite a remodeling job we've done, I think very creative, but the design of the parable was quite sound and functional and creative before we moved it off its foundation. The story is a classic, really, and one ought not mess with a classic. The parable that we read earlier has a frame. The parable has a setting. It's part of a larger collection of stories that's been preserved together by Luke. The parable is grouped with two other parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, who share common themes and follow the introduction in verses one to three there in the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. That's the occasion of the story. The occasion of the story is the Pharisees' criticism of Jesus because Jesus is associating with sinners. That's what Luke says. He eats with them. He drinks with the outcasts. He even, the text says, receives them, which may mean that he's hosting them, which, of course, riles the Pharisees who are... In our story, the older brother. It's a conflict that gives rise to the telling of these parables. They're grouped together, I say, these three parables. Lost coin, lost sheep, and lost son. In the first two, they end this way. For there is more joy in heaven over one who repents. There is more joy in heaven over one who repents. But in our story... That word doesn't appear, it's not there. Oh, there's joy. The Father expresses joy, but the word repentance doesn't appear. You're struggling with this, I can tell. You say, I don't know how long you're gonna talk, but you're not gonna convince me that I wasn't saved in the pig pen. I came to my senses in the pig pen. That's what Luke says in verse 17. Well, that's not what Luke says in verse 17. Luke, of course, didn't have television or film or video to capture what the character is thinking. He didn't even have those little cartoonist bubbles to let us know what the character is thinking. The only way for Luke to get us into the mind of a character like Shakespeare centuries later was to employ what we call a soliloquy, an interior monologue. It gets us into the head of the character so that we who are hearing this story know what he's thinking or she's thinking. It's a clever narrative device that's common to Luke's work. Volume one, the book of Luke, volume two, the book of Acts. Literally, the way that Luke introduces the soliloquy is the phrase, and he came to himself and he said, Luke uses that phrase in verse 17. He came to himself and he said, and he uses it on multiple occasions in the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Do you remember the story of the rich fool? This is a fellow who's making money hand over fist. What's he gonna do with all that income? Luke, who's the only one who records the story, says he decides in this fashion. He came to himself and he said, what am I gonna do with all my money? I know, I'll invest that money in me. I'll build bigger barns. Did the rich fool repent? No. The rich fool, we find out in his soliloquy, does the opposite of repent. Do you remember the story of the crafty steward? Only Luke tells that one. Crafty steward did something illegal, not sure what it was, malfeasance of funds, misappropriation of finances, something bad. He got caught red-handed, he did. What to do in that fix? Luke says he decides in this fashion. He came to himself and he said, what am I gonna do? I'm too weak to work. I'm too proud to beg. I know what I'll do. <laughs> Crafty steward, we find out in his soliloquy doesn't, does nothing, nothing like repent. Do you remember the story of the unjust judge? Only Luke tells this story. In that story, widow woman is pestering the judge for help, about to wear the poor man out. What's he going to do? Luke says, he decides in this fashion. He came to himself and he said, what am I going to do? Lest she wear me out. I know what I'll do. Does he repent? No, we're told twice in that story. He didn't fear God or respect human beings. He does nothing nothing like repent. The rich fool, the crafty steward, the unjust judge, they all came to themselves and said, interior monologue, Repentance, no. So the younger son, that's our story, is off in a far country, famine in the land. He's hungry, longing to feed himself with the pig's pods. What's he gonna do? Luke says he decides in this fashion. I know what I'll do. He came to himself and he said, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll go to my father and here's what I'll say. A soliloquy, It reveals it reveals nothing more in a moment of crisis, the younger son speaks to himself so we can hear. I know you don't like this. I know you don't like it because you have so much at stake, but Luke is asking us for a whole different point of view. Luke's asking you and me, the listeners, to hear things from a different perspective, not from the perspective of the younger brother, but from the perspective of the older son. Be honest. Be honest. You've always wondered about that guy's motive. Remember the Sunday school class? Somebody said, seems to me he's just being led by his stomach. (laughs) Somebody else once said, he just ran out of options. Well, they were right. (laughs) This hungry, optionless son has arrived home with scant evidence that he's repented. You have a lot at stake. I know how resistant you are to this. One time I preached a sermon on the older brother. It went like this. Older brother, older brother, older brother, older brother. Sermon ended. That's all we talked about. Sermon ended. Elder gets up and says, well, I think we can all appreciate and now identify with the younger son. (laughs) So then on another occasion in another church, I tried it this way. I got up, I put my notes down, put the Bible down, and then I pushed it to the side. And I leaned forward and I said, can we just talk? Whole congregation said, yeah, they leaned forward, let's talk. And I said, there's sin, there is sin in our neighborhoods, people. Why, we've got somebody that lives just three doors down from us, oh my goodness. Kid all, involved in all manner of sin. I don't know what all she's been up to. Went off to Chicago for about nine months, ten months. And then, out of all of a sudden, no rehab, no repentance, no nothing, I'm telling the congregation, she comes back home. And do you know what they did? They threw a big party for her. Oh, big balloons out front. Welcome home, Lisa, that says. Barbecue, they have a barbecue and the smell's wafting over to our house. I'm no sneak, but I watch all the cars coming in. And then we get a knock on our door. It's Lisa's mother. I open the door. She says, David, Lisa's just returned. I said, I noticed. She says, we're having a big party. I said, I can see. She says, would you and May come join us? And I said, ah, ho, 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 ah I don't know. And I then said, I called it a hypothetical tale. And then I started in on my sermon. After church was over with, one of my other neighbors, a real neighbor, <laughs> who typically didn't go to this church, but that day he did. He drove by my house and came to church. After church, he says, "Uh, David, uh, now which house had the balloons? I, I thought, oh man, you need to come here more often. You'll hear good preaching. That Tuesday, I got a call from Judy, who's also a member of the congregation. She said, David, would you settle a little argument that we had after church? Three of us got together and One person said, oh, I think they went to the barbecue. And another person said, oh, I don't think they'd go to that barbecue. She said, "Uh, who was right? I said, Judy, I just made that story up. It didn't happen. I was just telling that story to establish before I could finish. She said, what? If we can't believe you on that, what what else are you lying about? I'm not making this up. The next Sunday, I go to church, and I stand next to the older woman that I typically stood next to. And she turns to me, sure, as I'm standing here, and she says, did you enjoy the barbecue? (laughs) And for the benefit of all of us, I said, yes, it was very nice. (laughs) But I won't try that on you. You're too sophisticated a congregation. What I'd like to do instead is take you inside your brother's room where he has his new tailored clothes all laid out. Over there on the dresser, you see that yellow receipt? Go ahead, that's your father's bill. Pick it up. See how much money your father has spent on your brother. Now, let's walk inside the kitchen. Caters are all dressed up so handsome and pretty. Mario, he's in charge of the banquet. Mario, tell my friend here how much money this feast cost. And Mario looks at you and he says, your father is a very generous man. Now let's walk outside into the driveway. You see that 7th Series Jaguar forest green? Green exterior, green interior. Go ahead, open the door. Stick your nose inside your brother's car. You say, that smell makes me nauseous. Job asked, why do bad things happen to good people? And the older brother asks, why do good things happen to bad people? What about me? We've long resisted this story. It's not that we're, we're illiterate. It's not that we haven't read it in its fullness. It's just that we're so uncomfortable with the story's structure and its meaning. I know a preacher who was invited to church one Sunday and he said when I'm there where will you be in the Bible class and they said well the Sunday you come we'll be at the story of the prodigal son so the Sunday arrives and the preacher goes to the class and he begins this way he says once there was a man who had two sons and the younger son One day came to his father and said give me my share of the inheritance so the father gave the younger son his share of the family wealth who went off to a far country where he wasted his money on loose living and engaged in shady business so the father one day went out to the older son who as usual was busy working for his father in the field the father said son you have always been faithful you have never once disobeyed me you work so hard I think it's time for me to reward you. Let's have a party. We'll invite all of our friends. There'll be music and dancing, and I want you to wear my robe and have my ring and a brand-new pair of sandals just for you. And when the preacher finished his fabricated story, a woman in the audience, in a whisper meant to be overheard, said, that's how it should have been. Young man works for the family-owned towing company. He and his dad have spent their lives on the business. I asked the son, you an only child? He says, oh no, He says, I got a brother out in New York, he's an artist, a musician, something. I said, you work long hours? He said, I'm on call every other day. He said, I put in a 70 to 80 hour work week. I work when I'm well, I work when I'm sick. I said, you happy? He said, yeah, for the most part. Except dad says he's going to retire next summer. Says he's going to split the profits he saved from the business. Says he's going to divide it equally between me and my that brother up in New York. And then he says, doesn't seem fair. And there's a woman I would like for you to meet. She might be 60, but she looks like she could be 70 or more, given what she's been through the last several months. She says, I have four siblings who are scattered across the country. When mother took ill two years ago, we didn't want to put her in a nursing home, so she came to live with me. My brothers and sisters didn't come by much after that, no financial help from them. I had to quit my job to care for mother, and when she passed, Last week, of course, they all flew in for the funeral. But what I couldn't believe was what I heard in my living room the next day at the reading of the will. Mother's last request was, I divide my estate among my children equally because I loved you all equally. She says, that doesn't seem fair. They come to us from all sides brother out in New York who knows where they are distant siblings and you have good reason to go into the party you question their integrity you question their commitment you question their sincerity you question their repentance so there you are out there in the driveway Will you go in or will you drive away? You lean against your car, which by the way, is not a new Jaguar, and you look over at your brothers. Your keys are in your hand. Will you stay or will you go? You look up at the house with the music blaring, with the laughter and the dancing and the joy inside and out walks your father. And he stands next to you and he leans next to you against the car and he puts his arm around your shoulder and he says, son, come in. Your brother, we thought he was dead, but he's alive. He was lost, but he's been found. Won't you come in? You look down at your keys, you look at the house, you look at your father, square in the eyes. Will you go in? I think you will, based on one condition. And the condition is this. You know he deserves none of the grace that he's receiving. You know that. But did you also know that you deserve none of the grace that you're receiving? You know that. Yeah, that's why you'll go in. These stories have asked one critical question. Will we begrudge God for extending grace to people whom we find undeserving? The real invitation of this sermon is to enter in to the joy of God's grace.